0: Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Christian Mercado of the Food Engineer Podcast to talk about why he thinks you should bottle your beer, and how he goes about it himself. But first. We start with a digression about Saisons. And if you're shocked about that, how many episodes of this podcast have you listened to? But first, a message from our sponsors
1: The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Air Still Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels, Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org/experimental, and let's give back together.
0: you like to brew? Saison's. Saison's? A man after
2: my own own heart. I have a recipe for Saison that I probably brew twice a year. And that recipe, you know, I keep changing a little bit the wheat percentage, but I tend to stick to pretty basic hops, you know, like a bittering hop, like something clean. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, I normally put something like
0: Nelson. Nelson Sauvin. Oh, just just get a little extra aromatic punch.
2: Yeah, it also has like a certain uh, citric punch to it. Mm-hmm. it. It adds this like mandarin type of citric note in terms of uh, aroma, but also in terms of how tart it becomes. And I love it. it goes really well with the style, at least in my mind.
0: And I think that's the same characteristic that people talk about when when they make it references over back over to Sauvignon Blanc, right? Because it's that yeah. same acid, that same fruity acid character that just pops. Do Do you have a favorite saison yeast? So I tend to use the French saison blend. So uh, why do you like the thirty seven eleven?
2: The thing about thirty seven eleven is that it it has a certain aroma and ability to dry things out that is very different from other yeasts. And I've read and I've seen people complain about the Saison strains and also their ability to um, over-ferment. But honestly, I find it to be a type of Saison-y, peppery character that it gives that I don't get with any
0: other yeast especially if you stress it a little bit. It has that unique ability not only to be uh, sort of semi-saison-y, but it, it also has the glycoside uh, properties. So mm-hmm. you get sort of a big mouthfeel out of it. Now, I'm not usually a big 3711 fan. I've talked about that before on the podcast because I think there are a lot of people who just make sort of a, a flat, boring 3711-type saison. But I think 3711 absolutely has its its places and its its uses me i'm still a very stubborn uh, stubborn old man i go for the dupont strains oh those are notoriously difficult oh but i have ways i've heard that it's all about um, open fermentation yes all about the open fermentation all right well now that's been saison thoughts but <laughs> so why don't you tell me uh, or actually tell the audience uh, who exactly has been giving their saison thoughts
2: this is Christian Mercado. I am
0: the host of
2: the Food Engineer Podcast. All
0: right. Now you have now you know about Saisons and 3711, but ac- that's not why we actually have you on today, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about something that when I looked back at our show notes, I was surprised we had never really talked about, which is sort of bottling and packaging and all that sort of fun stuff. It's like, wait, how the hell did we do 300 episodes of this show and not talk about that?
2: I'm glad that we can expand on that topic.
0: Let's do the introductions now that, I mean, people do know about your Saison thoughts, but uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Christian Mercado, as I just established.
2: Um, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and I got into homebrewing at around 2011. Uh, it all started as a hobby, and I went through the usual phase that most home brewers go to where I wanted to open my own brewery. And I went on, I studied business of brewing for a bit, then I realized that it didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I went more through an academic route and became a food scientist, um, and now do some consulting in the food and beverage business, and also host a podcast about fermented foods and beverages.
0: Let's back up to getting into homebrewing. Yeah. What actually got you into homebrewing? Like what, what was the come-to-Jesus moment?
2: It was quite interesting. Um, I didn't have a hobby other than hiking at that point in my life. And a cousin of mine came by and said, Hey, I heard that making beer is rather easy or at least possible at home. So I got a kit and a book, but the book is a little bit too complex. So can you figure it out for me? (laughs) And he gave me a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew. Yep. And I went through that book over a summer and when I was done with it, I said, all right, I think we're ready. And uh, we made about three different kit recipes. And after the third one, I felt that we were ready to start taking on our own recipe making. And uh, yeah, it turned out pretty good, if I say so myself.
0: So now you still homebrew. Does, yes. Does your cousin?
2: Um, He just stopped brewing. Uh, family time is uh, a... <laughs> Is the thing right?
0: <laughs> well, see, that's a better track record than I think a lot of beginning brewing partnerships happen because I, I went through something very similar where uh, my roommate and I started brewing together, and I went nutty with it. And after about batch five or six, he was like, "You know, you're doing this too much for my taste, so I'm just going to back off." <laughs> <laughs> and that seems to be the usual patterns. Like one person gets obsessed, and the other person's like, uh, "Dude, slow down."
2: Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, for a while, he was the one that brewed the most. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a hands-on guy. He would rather brew two batches really quick. Um, And I would be the one stressing over the details of the recipe. Uh, So he taught me a lot about, you know, being proactive and, and just getting it done. And then you can do a little bit of analysis. And the next time you do your recipe, you know what to change, but get it done.
0: And that's a good point because I mean, at least in my field and I assume in your field as well a lot of people talk about things like analysis paralysis where you get yeah. yourself too wrapped up in in trying to nail everything perfectly and you never get anything done so and plus i'm a, I'm a big proponent of the idea that the way you become a better brewer is by brewing more so makes sense to me
2: yeah I used to brew with a homemade system and It took me so long to set it up every single time. I had to go to the basement, get everything together, put it in the porch, get my recipe, put all my ingredients. And then by the time I would be done, it would be like eight and a half hours. Um, So I found myself brewing less and less over the time. So I ended up just switching everything to a simple, small electric system. And now I brew a lot more than before.
0: What do you use? I'm using a G30, a Grandfather G30. They do make life a little bit, or they do make life a lot easier, if I'm being frank. And just like you, yeah, I find I brew more often with it. So we already established that you have a love of saisons. When you were thinking about becoming a professional brewer, was that going to be your direction?
2: When I was thinking of becoming a professional brewer, I I remember that I put together this quite detailed business plan. And... Actually, the name of the brewery that I was going to open at that point is actually the name of my current consulting company, which is called Dementum. It's a, a Latin word for the heat that is expelled by fermentation. And the whole concept of it was a brewery of session beers that were fitted to go well with Hispanic food. Um, and more specifically, the whole operation was to use a lot of the brewing byproducts in the restaurant
0: side. Oh, so you you were even going more complicated. You were like, let's not just have a brewery. Let's let's also have a restaurant attached, which yeah. <laughs> which is always fun.
2: And and I I learned that pretty quickly when running the numbers. Um, and at that point, because I wanted to make that business happen in Puerto Rico, at that point the tax laws were quite prohibitive there it was a two dollars and 55 cents on excise tax per gallon
0: of beer produced and that's compared to like i think what well, you're in new york now right so what, what would that be in new york i believe uh, i don't have the exact number but it's definitely lower than that
2: <laughs> and since then they have lowered it um so i think now it's about 85 cents per gallon so it's less than 50% of what it used to be. So perhaps now it's a better time to start a brewery in Puerto Rico. If anyone from there is
0: listening to this, you have an idea, man, go, uh, go get it. (laughs) Yep. After you decided that the numbers didn't work out, you went back and you got a, a degree in food science. Explain to people what that is and how that applies to the brewing industry.
2: Sure. So after four or five years from the time that I did my program at PSU, um, that was the program on the business of craft brewing. My significant other went to school to do a PhD in, in food science. And mm-hmm. when she was almost done, she realized that I spent a lot of our free time asking her questions about uh, microbiology, yeast, and all these things. And uh, she she suggested that I try out a shorter program and I went into a master of food science program, which is like a shorter master's degree. It's a it's a non thesis type of degree, and and food science is quite a vast topic, right? It, mm-hmm. it initially started here uh, up here in Cornell as a way to learn more about processing milk, how to um, decrease the amount of microorganisms in milk so that it would last longer, but uh, the whole field of Food science expands to everything from the point where produce comes out of the farm to the point that it goes to your table and it covers topics such as uh, microbiology, potential pathogens, uh, processing, packaging, and all the processes in between that could control the life of a food product. And I mean, that's pretty much what we do with beer already, right? Right.
0: Right. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up milk because I think about history and I wish I wish the people who go on and on about raw milk would realize just how much milk used to kill people. Yes, certainly. Um, there's a lot of
2: pathogens in there. And we're lucky that beer has such a, a pH and a series of characteristics, um, also starting with the high dose or high pitch that we put into it. That minimizes the probabilities of having pathogens in it,
0: yeah again, folks, it's always important a big healthy yeast colony will help you forgive a lot of sins that you make in the brewing world, including any particular pathogens that might want to spoil your beer. That's right all right now you use the the food science degree uh, this master's in food science, to start up a consulting company so what do you what do you do as a consultant?
2: right now, most of my time in the consulting side, which is We can call it a side gig. It's been spent mostly writing articles about beer, um, about spirits, and things of that matter. But I also do a lot of collaboration currently with Cornell University, specifically with their maple program, where I have developed a recipe for maple liqueur. And I'm currently working on a project on using maple syrup into beer, but in a different way.
0: Yeah, because you stop me and think about it. Whenever you see maple in beer, people always want to, and homebrewers in particular, are always like, look, I'm, I'm going to start with, yeah, I want to get that maple flavor. And then they they don't realize that maple syrup is pretty much sugar and the flavors disappear. So a lot of times when you're having something that's maple, it's maple flavored um, and uses something like fenugreek. Um, right. Now, And by the way, I've also seen some very ambitious people who happen to have access to, say, maple sap, making beers starting with maple sap. But uh, I don't have that in my area. Interestingly,
2: that's something that a colleague of mine has tried. Um, And and with mixed results, right? In some cases, it came out well, but in some cases, uh, it was a little bit unpredictable. But the case was to use the maple water or the sap itself as the mash water and i've also seen commercial examples of that and it can work well
0: i mean god that's like throwing water's tricky enough and now now you throw in like a whole biological component or agricultural component with all of its variability and uh suddenly all your assumptions about what ph eh, how ph works in a, in a beer mash and a lot of other things go out the window so yeah you're kind of flying a little bit more by the seat of your pants right you're brewing, and you said you're up in Cornell, right?
2: Yeah, um, I live close by.
0: <laughs> so, and Cornell, yeah, is obviously very famous for its food science and uh, all the other sort of hospitality and lots of other science programs. So, let's talk the the bottle conditioning, right? Because there's a lot of a lot of different things out there, and and since you're somebody who is a fan of saisons, there's a lot of argument amongst Cezanne-y type people or farmhouse aficionados, shall we say, about the nature of carbonation and particularly when it comes to a farmhouse and whether or not forced carbonation is good enough for for a saison slash farmhouse or if it's always got to be bottle conditioned. Do you have an opinion?
2: I prefer it bottle conditioned, Mm -hmm. but I also understand that it is an extra step, if you may. And and if that's going to prevent you from enjoying your saison and making more saison, then don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but by all means, I, I prefer the a uh, long fermentation in my saison, followed by bottle conditioning, and, and normally because it is a rather long fermentation, um, you tend to have also a little bit of a longer bottle conditioning because by then a lot of your yeast has already flocculated and settled, so you might have a, a lower amount of yeast in your final beer before bottling. So those are things that you have to. Take into consideration.
0: Well, let's break it down then. First, why do you prefer the bottle conditioning? What does it give you that that you don't get from forced carbonation?
2: From saison, you tend to have a beer that changes a lot through time, and I tend to enjoy that change. Um, you know, every couple of weeks, it tastes a little bit like a different beer. And with bottle conditioning, you get that for a longer period of time. My experience with uh, kicking it it has never been an adverse one but um it, it's a more static type of beer and sometimes i just get a little bit tired of it
0: you like the the induction of yeast characteristics and possibly the you know maybe long-term uh autolysis type the changes that can happen you like uh, any sort of stressed fermentation characteristics that you might get from a bottle as opposed to the spritz
2: yeah, it's, it's a lot comparable to perhaps uh, what you get with batonache on or on wine, mm-hmm. where you stir your wine on lees, and then that contact with the yeast tends to provide more mouthfeel, a uh, creamier mouthfeel, and a lot of other flavors that come from the autolysis.
0: Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, uh, I always think of it as like the uh, the breadiness that you get in champagne.
2: Certainly. That's that's one of the ways that people describe it.
0: Forced carbonation is fine to, to get something out there, and particularly if you're just making like a summery type easy drinking saison. But for you, you'd rather go with the bottle conditioning. Now, when you're saying, hey, I have a long fermentation cycle and a long bottle conditioning time, how long is your fermentation cycle? How long is your bottle conditioning time?
2: I tend to try to bottle after I have my my gravity stabilize. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And the problem with some of the on yeast strains is that they keep fermenting very slowly, right? It's part of their genetic traits with uh, this yeast being STA-1 positive. So it normally takes about four to six weeks to settle in terms of gravity, and then at least two weeks in the bottle
0: to carbonate. We're not talking months, then. You know, like I think a lot of times... Like when you say uh, it's a long cycle, part of my brain wants to go. Well, now this is now we're talking about a six month commitment, but you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's not a Russian Imperial Stout by any means, but uh, it's longer than your usual IPAs that we see nowadays
0: more commonly. You you mentioned Russian Imperial Stout. Obviously, those take a little bit longer because of alcohol and strength and all those sorts of factors. When you're doing your saison, what sort of strength are you aiming for?
2: Normally about six to seven percent.
0: So six to seven percent. So I mean, you know, that's not super high. It's also not a table saison, so uh six weeks to turn that around is not that bad. Now when you are going you'd said, hey, you know, already a lot of your yeast is flocculating out, I tend to think, yeah, during that that month-long settling time that you may have, you're gonna get a lot of yeast to flocculate out. But I never worry so much about it if I've hit it up front with a big viable culture. When you're going into the bottle, are you trying to prime with a brand new yeast, or are you letting what you have ride? And that's the reason why you say, "Hey, it takes a little bit longer."
2: I normally let it go with whatever is still in suspension in the beer.
0: For the actual priming sugar source, you get a lot of pe- a lot of debate out there from people who say, "Well, you can't use regular sugar; you have to use dextrose or you know corn sugar or." No, the right way to do it is DME. You know, so you get mm-hmm. malt flavors. And of course, obviously, if you're German, the right way to do it is, oh, you need more wort. Where do yeah, you go?
2: Into spice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest,
2: you know, I've used sugar, I've used uh, malt, and I've used also juice to do that. And I don't see much of a difference. Theoretically, you could say that something like DME would have more nutrients so it could help your your yeast on that extra fermentation step inside the bottle. Um, but there are also alternate sugar sources that you can use. As long as you know more or less how much of that sugar is fermentable and applicable to your yeast strain, you could make a calculation. And what I normally do is I, I look up my how-to-brew copy. There's a table there that tells you how much sugar to add um, with its whether it's corn sugar or table sugar. Um, and from that table, you take your ounces per gallon and I normally convert them to either grams or grams per liter for concentration. And then I, I convert that depending on the sugar that I'm using. So if my sugar is 80% fermentable, then I'll divide that by 0.8. So that it increases a little bit more. Um, and that, that way I can, convert from one type of sugar to another, and still get more or less the same amount of fermentability
0: and also avoid bottle bumps. And when you're looking at those factors of fermentability, where are you drawing that that factor where you can say, hey, you know, I've got 80% fermentability for this particular sugar source?
2: Normally, I do a, a small liter- literature research. Um, you can look wait, up you, how... Wait, fer- you do reading? How dare you? <laughs> You know, a little bit of that never killed anyone. But um, for example, I did a project where we used cherry juice to um, bottle condition a a wheat beer. So it was supposed to be a competition between different research labs, and uh, our beer was essentially like a amber color American style wheat beer, and then the fermentation inside the bottle was done with. This cherry juice. So, first step that we did was we looked up what type of cherry juices we can find in the market. Mm-hmm. Second, we looked up what are the ingredients on in those juices. So, we found a juice that doesn't have any other additives. And it's not because we fear the additives, right? We're to this. So, we look into what it is and what the purpose of it is. But in some cases, you have got some additives in the bottles that are meant to prevent. Some microorganisms to grow
0: in there, so well, like everybody's favorite, like uh, potassium sorbate and sodium benzoate, exactly. And you know, we
2: as home brewers or perhaps winemakers mostly they use what they call a KMBS or um, potassium metabisulfite. So that's another one of those that can inherently uh, affect some microorganisms, depending on what you're using. So we look for for those ingredients, right? And based on that, we decide. Now we know how fermentable it is, and then we know that it doesn't have anything that can inherently affect our secondary fermentation. So we found a product that was essentially made with juice concentrate, water, and some acid to stabilize or to correct the pH, and that's the juice that we went for. And
0: the product was pretty good. In other words, if I'm if I'm Joe Homebrewer. And I'm sitting here at home, and I've got my hands on, say, something like King Orchard's uh, Cherry Juice Concentrate. Um, if I wanted to figure out how much fermentability that I, I I have there, if I wanted to use it to prime, what you'd recommend then doing is basically doing a fermentation test. And actually, with the King Orchard's Cherry Juice Concentrate, i just thinking about it. Dilute it, because it's way too strong. You won't get anything <laughs> from um, it. So make a target profile solution of what it is that I want to actually introduce into my beer, do a baseline fermentation on it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be very big, you know, use a pint mason jar or something. Uh, or if you're fancy and you have a flask, use a flask and then measure both your, your original gravities and your final gravities. And you'll get an idea of just how much fermentation you can expect.
2: Exactly. A very important step is to look into the ingredients label in the back. Normally where you have your nutrition facts, Mm -hmm. And it gives you two very important pieces of information. One of them is what is a portion size for that product. So if you have a 32 ounce bottle and it says that it's a 16 ounce portion, then that means you have two portions in that very bottle. And then the second data point is you have a little table there that normally tells you how many or how much sugars you have per portion. So say you have, for example, six grams of sugar per every 13 ounces, that already gives you a concentration of sugars. Assuming that the sugars are 80 to 90% fermentable, then you can draw the line there. There's always going to be some variability. It depends on the type of sugar source. It depends also uh, with the yeast strain that you're using. But for the most part, you can use those as boundaries and then see how many uh, grams per liter or ounces per gallon you
0: want to put in there. Man, math. (laughs) But no, I mean, it stands to reason because, again, when we're trying to package, particularly with the fact that we have essentially an already stressed and exhausted yeast colony, right, Uh, it's going to go after the simplest sugars. And so those are the things that we need to worry about. And, And if you can do some back of the envelope calculations, then you can figure out, okay, you know, and it's not guesswork. You know, a lot of people, a lot of homebrewers out there will just kind of guess and wing it, or they'll do like, well, you know, hey, you know, for corn sugar, I put in four ounces for this batch, and so I'll just do four ounces of this. And then. Right. And it's not always the same. Yeah. And then they're surprised when they, I mean, it either works, which in case nobody ever hears about it, or they get bottle bombs or they get flat beer. Or you get cask beer out of a bottle. (laughs) Nothing wrong with cask beer out of a bottle. Maybe not for a Saison, but, you know. Well, it, that's a really good point, right?
2: The You got to also think about what you're aiming for. If you're going for a, a wheat beer that goes with like three volumes or 3.5 volumes of CO2 in a bottle, um, you got to take that into consideration as well. Whereas if you're doing something like a porter or a stout where you expect less carbonation in it, then that should also influence your
0: calculations. Yep. Exactly. Uh, look at look at how much how much of your target carbonation that you want and you know, with all the Belgian styles, nice and brisk. You know, the more more Englishy styles and particularly the sessionable styles, a little less. A little more mellow. Certainly. Well, and also the other consideration then is also bottles. So as you mentioned, yes. like you know, with the Saison or Whitbeer, you want three and a half volumes or thereabouts. And your standard twelve ounce long neck may or may not comfortably handle that without doing a kaboosh.
2: Yeah. um, Your bottles, most of the bottles nowadays are not really designed for being used multiple cycles. And by cycles, I mean, you know, filling, pressurizing, and then emptying. Um, There are several factors that influence that. One of them is that as we move toward a, a greener supply chain, um, the weight and transportation of bottles is one of the things that can increase those costs pretty quickly. So what we're seeing in the market is a lot more thinner bottles that are meant to be used once and then disposed of. So for that reason, I recommend that you either get bottles that are meant for home brewing, or get some thick bottles like big thick bummers or Belgian style bottles that have the ability of being used more than once, but also that have the ability to withstand somewhere between, you know, two and a half to three and a half volumes of CO2.
0: To your point about not reusing bottles. I mean, German like a lot of German bottles are are designed for reuse right because they do the whole return and recycling program, but a lot of American bottles are not because they're intended to be essentially slagged down after one use and then returned into the industry that way. Even some of the thicker glass bottles, so like when I made my brute beers, my champagne beers, you know we were using liter and a half champagne magnums, and those are very stout bottles. Mm-hmm. and even after doing say about three cycles in those bottles, and again the brute process is a little uh, more strenuous on the bottles because it's a freezing and a and a warming uh as well as the carbonation after about 3 cycles on those liter and a half, we started to see about a 20% failure rate when we go to do the the freeze cycle mm-hmm. and the next would shatter so even big heavy stout glass bottles are not <laughs> are not perfect for that
2: yeah and, and a good thing to do is to always inspect your bottles as you're washing them. Any bottle that has a nick on it or that is uh, heavily scratched, you should dispose of that bottle.
0: And I think it's
2: not worth uh, losing all that much beer, especially if you're using, uh, you know, seven fifties or larger bottles.
0: When you're doing these uh, saisons, are you a fan of like the the those fancy Belgian bottles that I usually think of like getting a quad or a double out of? Yeah, you know, the they come up to a cork.
2: I like them. I've never corked them. Um, normally, I cap them, but I also like swing tops just because uh, they have built in insurance in
0: them. <laughs> they come with their own PRV. Yeah. <laughs> Safety is good. Got that. You said you do two weeks for your saisons. Now, there's a lot of questions out there about, like, hey, you know, not only the length of time, but also at what temperature. So like I know a lot of American homebrewers and a lot of a lot of American brewers always want to keep the beer cold for obvious reasons, you know, because yeah. cold is cold is a beer's friend. But if I stop and I think about the things I've seen in Belgium, for instance, a lot of those beers when they do the bottle conditioning phase are kept relatively warm. Like they're kept in the in the seventies. That's right. When you're doing your package Saisons here, what are you going for?
2: Normally 65 to 70 degrees. At some point, I'd made a batch where I put them all inside of my fermentation chamber again, set it up to 65 (laughs) degrees or 70 Mm -hmm. for two full weeks. And it was an interesting outcome because, first of all, the amount of carbonation was relatively consistent Mm -hmm. throughout the entire batch. And they all more or less uh, carbonated at the same time. So time and quality really improve by just controlling the fermentation temperature inside the bottle.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because uh you'll see so many homebrewers stress out about like maintaining their temperatures during fermentation. You know, like, oh no, yeah, no, I've got I've got a tilt in my conical that's glycol chilled, and I can see and measure, you know, one degree variation on, on this fermentation the whole time. And then they'll <laughs> put it into uh, into bottles or into a keg and you know, oh yeah, we put the bottles in the closet. Right. Or in the garage. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with burning a garage, says the guy standing in his garage. <laughs> so it but it is interesting, like i mean, cause we talk storage temperature matters, again the focus is usually on staying cold to preserve hop characters and prevent or slow down oxidation, not prevent, but slow down oxidation and other sort of chemical reactions. But in the particular case here for this packaging step, and particularly I find as you go higher in terms of the carbonation that you're trying to achieve. So the more champagne-like, the more spritzy that you're trying to go for, the more it is important to treat it like it's still actually a fermentation.
2: Yes. You're essentially cultivating yeast again. And while we tend to manipulate the fermentation temperature of yeast because of the qualities that we get out of the beer, meaning the aroma and the taste of it, um, yeast really likes to grow at like, 30, 35, 37 degrees Celsius, which is, you know, close to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to be really happy at that temperature, whether or not they produce the flavors that you like. So if what you want to do is ensure that that secondary or tertiary fermentation happens in a certain amount of time in a consistent manner, one of the tools that you have at your, your disposal is constant temperature or relatively constant temperature and relatively warm. And then the other thing is the nutrients that go into that. So for that reason, some people prefer to use things like DME on their beers because not only are you giving them a sugar source, one that is relatively varied because it contains different types of sugars in it, but it also contains minerals and vitamins that are in there that can be taken by the yeast as they ferment, and that keeps your population a little bit happier
0: and i think what the the other argument about dma is also that it has positive effects on heading right uh, so the something something about the you know the the protein nature of dma as opposed to regular shorter supposedly influences bubble formation
2: but mm-hmm. that makes sense
0: yeah although i mean i'll tell you in, in the experiences i've had i've never been able to tell a difference <laughs> <laughs> that may lay on me um okay so we've got the beer going in the bottles, maintaining the fermentation. Yeah, you know, one thing I didn't ask was how do you introduce the sugar into the beer when you're going into the bottle?
2: I normally make a solution of sugar and, and water, normally boiled water that I cool down, and so that dilution goes on, and then I put that in a in a bottling bucket, and then I transfer my beer to the bottling bucket, making sure that it swirls as it goes in, so that it mixes. I can't. Ensure 100% that it's going to be distributed perfectly,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but that has worked well so far.
0: Yeah. Just don't stick your arm in the bucket and give it a swirl. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recommend you do that. Or to put a, a drill with a paddle attachment and aerate it, That's, uh, <laughs> that might have negative impacts. But look, it's good for paint. Um, <laughs> oy. So, But I mean, again, very, very classical, no frills, no fuss, no muss. Now, the other big question is, uh, we covered why we like doing bottle conditioning for something like a Saison, why it, why it can matter. People are going to look at this and go, but I love my kegs. Yeah. What about doing something like keg conditioning?
2: That is certainly an option. I, I would say that I have not done it because um, I don't want to modify my current set of kegs. But that's something that I would consider with uh, used kegs. And, uh, you know, set them up, cut their dip tube a little bit shorter. And you can also have like a a pressure valve in there that self-releases excess pressure and you essentially are making a big can of beer. And then you have to also take into consideration the fact that your first couple pours are going to be quite yeasty and cloudy, but that's, that comes with it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And so combination of cut dip tube, a spunding valve at least during the initial carbonation I think also depending upon your keg if you don't depending upon how well your keg seals you might have to put a little initial CO2 on top of it in order to kind of seal the keg yeah. um, but then otherwise just let it go this is the same sort of thing uh, same time period uh, and then if you're really being clever you put the dang thing in the in your chest freezer or keg server whatever it is you're using to keep the kegs cold after the conditioning's done let it settle hard and then transfer out and transfer into another keg that's actually a really good call
2: uh, that's something that i've not tried but
0: theoretically it's a great idea to get really clear beer yeah just don't just don't nudge the keg when you do it otherwise <laughs> cuz then you're undoing a lot of work yeah you don't want to go through that now actually let's talk about uh, the the other thing is we just mentioned okay the reason to sh- shorten the dip tube and do all that is cuz you want to get off the yeast or not suck up the yeast cake when you're doing that and the leftover yeast that is formed when you're doing the packaging. Do you have any tips or suggestions about how to necessarily reduce the amount of yeast that we end up in the bottle? Or is it just you get what you get? You mostly get what you get.
2: Um, Especially if you're using um, the same yeast that you already put at the beginning, right? You're going to have a certain population and then when... You put them in the bottle, they're going to go through their phases again. They're going to start reproducing. They're going to start creating alcohol. So you're going to get a small increase in biomass there. You're going to have more yeast there in the bottom. But if you're going to use, say, for example, uh, a new mix of sugar, plus also you're going to add yeast again, then there's a chance that you might end up with a lot more yeast. Um, A lot more yeast, but also in the sake of getting a more repeatable product or at least predictable product. Um, I don't really have any strategies to reduce the amount of solids in there.
0: I'm still impressed that somehow, like when I, when I first got into beer, you would go and buy like Sierra Nevada pale ale and it was in bottle conditioned, and you could always find like a nice little layer of sediment under under there. But over the years they've reduced that. Yeah. It,
2: another thing is, Follow the same rules that you would follow with a bottle of bubbly. Just don't put it in the door of your fridge. Put it there a couple of days before you're gonna use it. Let it come to the right temperature. And when you do, make sure that you pour it all at once or as fast as you can. So to avoid um, messing up with that layer of sediment at the bottom and then having that end up in your pour. Unless you're making a style of beer that calls for that in it.
0: Christian, before before we close things up here. Anything else that people should think about when they're doing packaging in the bottle? I would
2: say uh, the type of bottle that you're using. As many people say, and you may have read in your beer books, avoid those clear bottles, especially if you are going to put them in a close, uh, in a place that may have a window. Um, the size of it. I tend to use larger bottles, so I have to bottle less. So bombers are great. Um, large Belgian bottles are great. Champagne bottles are great. 12 ounces, not so much because you have to bottle like 40 something bottles per batch. And yeah, that is time consuming. But overall, I would say, you know, experiment with it, especially if you are having some trouble finding CO2, which some people have faced recently. Um, bottle condition is always there. It has served us for perhaps centuries and it continues to do so.
0: I was going to say millennia. Uh, you know, in the past, we may not have captured all the CO2, but there, there was still a little on prickling of carbonation, even all the way back in Sumeria. Most certainly. All right. Let's tell people about your podcast, what you cover, and where they can find it.
2: Uh, my podcast is called the Food Engineer Podcast. It's a podcast in Spanish that mostly focuses on fermented products, that is beverages and also foods. Uh, you can find it on all major platforms. You can... Look it up on Instagram, Facebook, Carr, and also on all of the major platforms like Spotify. Just look up the Food Engineer podcast. Especially if you like beer and you want to hone up your Spanish, just go for it.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. All right, and final question. Favorite fermented food that isn't alcoholic? Kimchi. There we go. Uh, that's looking certainly and lend a kick to anything else that you're eating. So there you go. Yes, certainly. Boys and girls, don't forget that you can go find The Food Engineer on all your favorite podcast platforms. In fact, where you're listening to this one, you can probably go and find it there. And uh, how often do you come up with new episodes?
2: Normally, about every two weeks.
0: Every two weeks. So go find out some more information about fermentation in general. And in the meanwhile, enjoy actually doing some bottling. I know a lot of people like to switch over to kegging for the whole time advantage thing, but I think if you... If you actually really take a look at the total time and you take a look at the effort that you that you go and put into it, once you get your hands practiced at doing a, a bottling run, it's not really all that much time. And for some beers, particularly like a Saison or other farmhouse beers, that bottle conditioning step can really make a beer sing. So go and take the time and let me know. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at bottling with Christian. Don't forget you can listen to his podcast, The Food Engineer, a podcast dedicated to exploring fermented foods and beverages. You can find him on all the podcast platforms or his website, thefoodengineerpodcast.com. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at DennyExperimentalBrew.com at or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging our buck or tour more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is best friends, save them all. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.
1: Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing.